book of 1 Peter. And the book of 1 Peter is reverberating in our hearts and minds. Okay. We've looked, we've looked at the book. We've begun. Peter is the apostle not only for people with foot-shaped mouths. He's the, he's the apostle for uh, victorious failures. People who are rejecting God and rebellious against God and God makes them new. And then we saw in the first chapter that we have such a great salvation. And uh, this morning I want to ask you, did you get to do the devotional? Most of you get to do the devotional, okay? Let me, let me go out and do our, uh, our uh, interview again, okay? Who'd like to be uh, on tape here? Okay, what was the first question? Wasn't the first question, why, why does God want us to submit? Isn't that, wasn't that the first one? Why is submission hard? God wants us to do it, but it's hard. Okay, why is submission hard? We're selfish and sinful. Okay, we're selfish, selfish and sinful. Boy, everyone's alliterating. It was passionate yesterday. and Okay, but sinful and selfish, yes. Original sin. Original sin. Oh, that's real theological, but that's true. Uh, our natures are kind of set against God. Okay? It's kind of. Yeah. That kind of. That was a mild exaggeration, right? Okay, it's a what? Conflict of wills. A conflict of wills. Okay, so when you, you take physically two poles that are the same and put them together, they kind of reject. And even though we're made in the image of God because of the original sin, because of this selfishness, we shy away from God. So submission is, is not only difficult, I'd have to say it's impossible really without the work of God. Okay? Not very creative. Okay, now the second... The second question was, why is it hard? Because we're sinners. Okay, that's submission. Now, the next one is, why is suffering hard? God calls us to suffer. Why does God require it and why is it difficult? Okay. Scott. Suffering's hard because uh, if it weren't hard, there wouldn't be any tempering to it. Okay, it wouldn't have its effect. Why? Why? Suffering hurts. <laughs> Suffering, hurt. Suffering hurts, okay. Uh, and what makes it doubly hard? Okay, we're sinners. We don't like to submit. We don't like to submit to suffering. But but, what makes it... Okay, I'm giving it here, Mrs. McCarg. Because we don't think that we deserve it. Oh, okay, that's very good. That's the, that's the bottom line. And it's, we don't think we deserve it. And then, who do we have to suffer under? Other snotty sinners, right? <laughs> Which makes it even worse. See, we not only have to submit and suffer, we have to suffer at the hands of other people that are very obnoxious. And, and as we would say, rub us the wrong way. It's okay when we do the rubbing, right? <laughs> but when we get rubbed the wrong way, it's very, very difficult. So submission is hard because of sin. And then... To suffer under that submission becomes doubly hard because, as Lynn said, we don't think we deserve it. And what makes it even, I think, triply hard is sometimes we don't deserve it. 
aren't we even worse? I know I'm worse when I'm right. I mean, I, you know, I'm almost tolerable when I'm wrong, but, but when I'm right, it's almost intolerable to be around me because I know I'm right and, and I'm going to insist on it and I'm not going to suffer. Okay, what's the next question that I asked you to think over? How did Christ suffer without sin? Okay, how did Christ... Okay, now again, we know He's the God-man, so the parallel isn't, isn't 100% perfect. He didn't have a sinful nature, but He was 100% human. How did He go through what God required Him to go through and He requires us to go through, but He made it through without sin? I mean, this could take the whole hour and we won't get to the book of First Peter, but okay, Lynn wants to give it another shot. Submitted to God's will. Okay, he submitted to God's will, and of course, not being having a sinful nature, that became a, a possibility that isn't there for us in a sense. Okay, someone else. Okay, let me go over here. Yeah, I gotta keep talking on the tape so there's not dead time. He became sin for us. He became sin for us. Okay, he became sin for us. But um, when they're plucking out his beard. You know, when they're hitting him, how did he, how did he take it? She's got the answer right here. Well, good. Because if we have the answer, we can take the rest of the morning off. I don't have to go through First Peter. He not only submitted himself, but he entrusted himself to God. Okay, that's going to be one of the keys. He entrusted himself to God. That's going to become very, very important, what entrusting yourself to God is. I think he had the power to retaliate, but he didn't. Okay. okay, that makes it even more interesting. He had the power to retaliate. Uh, even justifiably, he said, I could call on legions of angels, justifiably, but he did not. Now that takes self-control. Did anybody say by obedient, because his desire was to be obedient to his father? Okay, they hinted at it. They didn't put exactly like that. They submitted to the will of the father. Okay. He knew what the results of his suffering would be. So he, you know, he, he, he endured because he knew the results would be our salvation. So it made it bearable for him. Okay, so he knew the end result. He knew that his suffering was not in vain. Okay, and I think I asked you one more question. How does this give you hope? Well, how does it give us hope? The results, okay, Dink is going back to that again. It gives us hope because it means that what we go through isn't just nonsense. You know, there is a result. It's not kind of uh, useless. Okay, let's look at First Peter again. Let's look at the chapter 2. Your great calling. Beloved, one of the things that will really get you through is knowing who you are and where you're going. I think being a Christian is a lot like being a teenager. It's already and not yet. You know, you're already grown up, but nowhere to go. Right? That's what being a teenager is. You're all grown up, but um, there's nowhere to go. You can't really be a full adult. In the, Israel, look at the Old Testament. In Israel, Israel was in the wilderness, right? They're already a kingdom of priests. They're already a royal nation but they're on the run. You know, get the, the incongruity. 
They're in the wilderness, they're kings, but they're still hauling freight in the wilderness. Um, They're in the fiery furnace of the desert. And even though their shoes are not wearing out, there's plenty of food, they still have this attitude of, is it worth it? And of course, that's canonizing Jewish humor, isn't it? Retevyev says in Fiddler and Roof, well, if that's what it is to be God's people, let him choose someone else for a while. <laughs> you know. Now we can laugh at that, but that's the height of rebellion, isn't it? But it does come from centuries of being beaten on and trying to figure out why you're getting beaten on if you're the chosen. Okay. Uh, and that is the problem, the problem, perennial problem for believers of all ages, uh, Jew and, and uh, Christian alike in the Old and New Covenant. If we are God's children, and we are, and it's a special calling, why in the world do we get beaten on for doing what's right? Okay. Let me read the, uh, the uh, passage. Uh, uh, second chapter, verse 1 through, through 3, 7, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they have been appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people... But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, They may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or as the governor sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, 
Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls." In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if them, any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be external, <clears throat> braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. First of all, if you are going to suffer and do it in a way that is pleasing to God and beneficial to others, the first thing you have to remember is that you have a great calling. Uh, the day of calling is sort of dead. We all have occupations. We all make money. And that's what we think of. The Protestant Reformation idea that we all have a divine calling and that's where we need to work out our salvation in the context of where God's called us has sort of died. Okay? So the Protestant Reformation went from, you know, they kind of destroyed the medieval Catholic idea of some people have a great calling and others, you know, you're just the hoi polloi. You know, I mean, you're there to support the, the priest and others. And so the Protestant Reformation says everybody has a great calling. Today, nobody's got a calling to do anything. It's how much money you can make and which profession you can take over. Okay, things are really changed. And because of that, nobody wants to live for anything except themselves. The idea of a calling that you're special and God has laid His hand specially on you to do something, no matter how small or great it may be, but it's a calling from God is dead. And if we're going to make it in suffering, you've got to see that. And these are the first ten verses. What a calling we have. We are to be these things. Now, first three verses make it real clear again, tying up with 
chapter 1, remember again, the, the chapters and the verses are arbitrary. You know, somebody put them in there in uh, uh, medieval times and uh, the old waggish saying was that's where the horse jumped because the guy that did it did a lot of work while he was traveling. Okay, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not good. So 25 is talking about the Word of God and then, then Peter says, look, long for that Word like we ended yesterday. Long for that Word. Why? Because it makes you grow. Now, if anybody has ever seen the phenomenon, and one of the Psalms talks about it, the phenomenon of a baby. Ever see a baby, you know, being breastfed? Lots of times, right? Doxina, okay? So, you know, ba- breastfeeding, okay? It's a little embarrassing today, but, you know, we've sort of gotten reused to it. When you see a baby, they call it rooting. You know? See? Now, one of the Psalms, in the what, 130s uh, somewhere, talks about, I have made my soul quiet within me like a weaned child on its mother's breast. You see, a weaned child doesn't want milk anymore, right? So he or she just kind of, you know, leans on mom and can relax. But have you ever seen a little tyke that wants food? (coughs) I can still remember to this day the day that my wife started weaning our first child. There was this blood-curdling scream from down the hall at the manse up in Harmony, New Jersey. That's it! That's it! You're not going to bite me one more time! <clears throat> okay? So, so, Peter is saying, be like that little baby. You root around, you know, and don't be satisfied. You know, the preacher, <clears throat> the preacher who would have people come in, and, and <laughs> this will ruin preaching perhaps for... for uh, Jay and the others, you know, but if you could look at the congregation like a whole bunch of rooting babies, you know, your souls ought to be restless in the pew, okay? Not to be entertained, but to latch on to the pastor's breast, as it were, you know, and to get the milk of the word. Why? Because you'll grow. You ought to hunger for that word and root around till you got it and you start getting that milk because without the word of God, you won't be able to grow. Okay, but once you start growing, <clears throat> what will you look like? And there's a whole bunch of mixed metaphors here. Peter goes on to say, look, what's your calling? It's real, you know, that, you know this picture, Paul uses it a lot too. We're, we're what? See, when you talk about church, the church at La Mirada, it's not the building. No, no, no. It's not the building. It's the people. You see, the, the, the building that the God, you know, Jesus said when He was here, the time is coming and now is when the Father desires them that will worship in spirit and truth. That's the church. Christ is the cornerstone and through the power of the Holy Spirit He makes us living stones. And when He causes you to be born again and growing through that milk, He's grabbing you and He's building you into a temple. A living temple where spiritual sacrifices, as we were being told last night, singing praise. We are to be a living temple. And then he goes on and picks all these Old Testament metaphors. You're a temple, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Psalm 110, the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. After the order of Melchizedek, the priest king 
who will fight for God's people and protect them and teach the law. That is our Savior. And we can't save anyone, but we're to be like that. We are to be people who go out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we teach the law to other people. We teach the Word of God. Now, you know, as an aside here, it's real interesting. Um, this is being written uh, to, prime, you know, to Christians, right? Thus endeth dispensationalism. Okay? Okay? If you can take everything that is said of Israel and apply it to the church, what should fall into place? The church is where the reality is Israel was the shadow. And our dispensational friends get everything else turned upside down, right? Israel's the real thing. We're the shadow. Right? And that's not, that's not it. But the reality is the temple of the Holy Spirit whose temple we are. Okay? So, that, beloved, there's not going to be anything more significant than the church. Do you realize that? There isn't going to be anything more in the continuation or growing of God's plan. And I have to confess as a pastor that I've had sinful responses at times. I've thought, God, isn't there a better way than the church? You mean this is your plan for the ages? Now, I never desired to go back to being a dispensationalist, but boy, oh boy, it sure gave me some real strong questions you know, that the whole hope of the world rests on the shoulders of the church, but it does. It's not the United Nations. It's not Rush Limbaugh. You know, it's, it's not the uh, World Bank. The history of the world depends on the royal priesthood, the living temple. So the next time you feel small and puny and insignificant, will you please remember your calling? Will you really remember who you are? Okay, because, you know, if you don't remember who you are, when you go into battle, you won't be like David. I come to you in the name of Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. And who are you, you big, sloppy, no-good pagan, uncircumcised, filthy giant. Who are you to defy the living God? You know, and, and, and there's Goliath. What did you smoke this morning, kid? I mean, what were they giving you behind the lines? You see me? I got, I got brothers, four of them. And look at this. I mean, you, you little dog. You flee, you come out here to defy me? Now that story isn't just to pump you up. The point is David was a little mini Jesus Christ. Okay? And when Jesus went out to the cross all alone, and nobody stood with him, and he could say even more than Paul. Remember Paul said, my first defense, nobody stood with me. And you know, I am really profoundly touched by Paul's response. Which is why? Sock it to him, Lord. Lousy guys didn't stand. No, he says, may it not be held against them. What a response. See? Remember your calling, because if you don't remember who you are, you won't act like it. Okay? 
Second thing that Paul, uh, Peter goes on to remind us, okay, uh, and again he puts this in the context. Let me finish up that first point, really. Verse ten: For you were once not a people. Now this is written primarily of Gentiles in the Old Testament, and I think this is the fulfillment of it: Jew and Gentile being made into one body. You were not a people, but now you're a people. And we've been made a people, but we're not home yet. We're still in the wilderness. We're still suffering. You see, because the next two verses really now get you into the whole heart of the book. Peter really comes to his point in 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So the first step is that, and we'll come back to that. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. That really, in a sense, is the theme of the book. You're a soldier. You're a royal priesthood. You're a chosen nation. You are coming in to possess the land And you'd better remember that you're an alien. You're an alien. And act accordingly. On the one hand, remembering that you're a royal nation. But on the other hand, you live in a world that's hostile to you. But the first place that Peter aims is where? Inside of you. Before uh, the... I think Jay Jay Adams has a little book called The War Within... That's an apt title. Before a soldier can ever defeat the enemy, he must defeat himself. It's crucial. If you read about tactics in warfare, I've not done a lot, but I've read a little bit in doing some study. One of the things that brilliant tacticians will tell you is that you don't beat another army by superior forces and weaponry. You normally win a battle by what we would call in street language, psyching out the other guy. By displacing his center of confidence. And that's why you always have flanking maneuvers or surprise attacks or whatever. Is to get the other person off guard. If you've ever seen judo or if you've ever seen wrestling, that's the key to the sport when you throw the other person off balance. All sports, I should say almost most sports, have fakes or fainting in it because you try to get a person to lean one way and you go the other way. And a person who is not prepared for battle will be faked out a lot quicker. And so Peter says you better be there are, there are desires within you, there are desires within you that will make you incapable of fighting a spiritual battle. And there's lots of them. There's the open ones of lusting after sin, but there are also the subtle ones. Remember James 4? Why are there wars and quarrels among you? Remember that passage? What is the source of wars and quarrels among you? Your own desires that wage war in your members. There you are like a person with a raging fever. I want that sin. 
Okay? And as you grow as a Christian, by God's grace, you can defeat some of those things. But there are the more subtle ones. Remember in James 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you actually even pray, you don't receive it because of what? You ask Him properly to consume it on what? Your own desire. Do you realize, beloved, you can ask for the right thing for the wrong reason? I've seen it happen. God, save my husband. He's a jerk. And he is. He is a jerk and worse. And then the guy gets converted and what happens? She runs off with somebody else. I've seen that happen more than once. And I don't know a person's heart, but as I analyzed those few cases, you know what it was? She was the church martyr. She knew where her life fit in. And, oh, Susie, I don't know how you can put up with that guy. God's really giving you grace. Oh, I know it's hard, it's Harriet, but I hang in there. And then this jerk gets converted. And he turns into a wonderful Christian guy. And everybody's praising God. And there she is, left out in the cold. Nobody's, you know, uh, comforting her or anything anymore. She doesn't know how to act. And off she runs. Why? Because in that case, she wanted the husband's conversion, I believe, for the wrong reason. And and I'll confess before you that lots of times I want the right thing for the wrong reason. I want my kids converted. Why? Because I can get a lot more done with converted kids that don't hassle me. I'll tell you, you can write a lot more sermons, you can counsel a lot more people, you can do a lot more things if the kids don't hassle you. You understand what I'm saying? You better beware of the battle within before you're ready for the battle without. But the battle without will come. Why? As Paul says, and Peter says amen to this, if you are a Christian, you're going to suffer. No questions asked. No questions asked. And we're spoiled here in the United States because we have not tasted of severe persecution. You just tell that to most of the Christians across the world. If you could, talk with the Chinese Christians. Talk with the uh, few Christians in Russia and elsewhere. Suffering is part of being a Christian. You are an alien. Now, I've never been down. We just... uh, I forget the chap's name. You remember the guy that was just shot down, the F-16 pilot in Serbia? Grady. Grady, yeah. Okay, and you read that account, you know, eating insects and, you know, sponging, you know, water, you know, four days in a great rescue. It's, it's just, you know, make, make a great movie. But the reality is, this guy who's been trained in survival training knows that his making it out is dependent on two things. One people rescuing him. And two, him being alive to be rescued. Okay? And so he has to fight what I would think would be my uh, tendency. Yo, here I am! You know, come and get me. Okay, rescue me now. Okay, you do that and he would have been shot on the spot. He was that close to armed people who would have just killed him at the drop of a hat. You see, there's a picture of, of what, what Peter is saying. 
You have got to have the self-control to follow what you've been taught so that God rescues you. You are in alien territory. Will you please get that through your head? You're in alien territory. When you go down to the bank, you're in alien territory. When you go to Taco Bell, you're in alien territory. Okay? Wherever you go, you're in alien territory. Why? Now, I don't want you to get like some of the extreme charismatic camp where they see a demon behind every bush and, and in every taco. You know? um, but I do think as Reformed people, we can recapture spiritual warfare. Okay? I think we really need to do that. And there's an excellent book out, Baker Publishing House, even though they're beginning to put out more and more junk. This is a good book called Power Encounters, Recapturing Spiritual Warfare by David Pallison. Teaches at CCEF East and uh, Westminster East and an uh, excellent book in reclaiming spiritual warfare. And it's classical spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, Putting on the Armor, which we'll talk about the last day. David Pallison, P-O-W-L-I-S-O-N, Power Encounters, Baker Bookhouse. Um, you're in alien territory. Okay, we're strangers in this world. And here is it's interesting. We are kings and queens with Christ, but we have not yet been crowned. He's been crowned and we're crowned with him, but we've got to fight through the enemy territory. And if you don't get up every day, if you don't get up every day and say, I'm in a battle zone, what's going to happen? You're going to get hit by a sniper. It's that clear. You're going to stand up and you're going to walk like you're in safety and all of a sudden you're going to get hit and you're going to look up and go, okay, Lord, what's going on here? And he's going to say, I told you to duck. <laughs> and you didn't duck. Let me digress a bit into my counseling. That was one of the lessons I had to learn early on as a, as a counselor, that I would tell people to do things that are biblical, and they'd come back, and I can remember one gal coming back, through gritted teeth, she said, I will never do that again. What I had told her was that she had sinned against some people, and according to Matthew 5 and Matthew 7, she needed to go back and deal with it. And I was correct. But what I forgot to tell her was that when she goes back and deals with it biblically, she might get chewed up. And she did. She said, I went back and I asked for forgiveness and they chewed me up one side and then they chewed me down the other side and then they spit me out in little pieces. And she looked at me with that look that I won't ever forget, nailed me to the wall like, you didn't warn me. Beloved, we have this great calling, but you know, when you, when you stand out on your neighborhood and go, here I am, <laughs> I'm God's gift to you. <laughs> I'm part of that living temple, the royal priesthood. I pray that this neighborhood won't get run over by the gangs. And I pray that God will bless us and keep us from an earthquake. And I really, I'm praying for you all to be saved. And your neighbors look at you and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get inside. You're a nut. I mean, you, you know, Southern California is so blasé, you probably could do that and everybody look at you and kind of go, yeah. oh well, 
just another person here in Southern California. Just a regular old day. When I came out to California, that's in my going away party, uh, they, that was the joke. Why is you know, California like granola? Because when you take the fruit and nuts away, all you have left is flakes. <laughs> that's the East Coast version of what California is like, okay? Okay, so you have these inner enemies and you have these outer enemies and you must be aware of it. Okay, so while you're a royal priesthood, the world will not appreciate you. You will not be on Time Magazine. You will never hear broke all when the evening news goes, you know, gang, we ought to really thank God for these Christians because if it wasn't for them, we would have been wasted a long time ago. Let's hear it for the Christians. They wait a long time, I tell you, before you ever hear that on the evening news. It's very intriguing, you know, until somebody gets shot up or whatever, um, you know, it it takes the earthquake for God to get mentioned maybe two or three times, a generic God, and then he goes back on the idol shelf until the next earthquake. you You must be representatives. Every day you get up, I'm a soldier, I'm a soldier fighting a battle, I am representing the King of Kings and His reputation rests on my shoulders. That's the high calling that we have. Now, let's look at the bulk of what's left because this is, that even though you have this high calling and you must realize as aliens to live this way, what does it mean? Gulp. It means suffering. Because your high calling is to be suffering saints. Suffering saints. First of all, uh, under this, verses uh, 13 uh, in chapter 2 right through to 7, that's a whole section because it talks about the attitude of suffering and being servant. First of all, general principles which are true for all of us are given in 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay, and then really everything is a readout underneath this of particular examples of this. Submit yourself to every human institution that God has instituted, whether it's king is one authority or governors, because it's the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of Christ, of God. See, the, the issue is, The freedom that God gives you every day is not to go out and do your own thing. It's not your freedom to go out and party or vacation every day. You are to get up every day and to serve the Lord and say, okay, there's going to be people that will want to nail me at work and elsewhere, relatives, sometimes even in your own household, people who want you to stumble and fall and do badly so they can go, yeah, 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 big Christian, aren't you? I mean, the world just loves it, doesn't it? When we've got an evangelist that goes to bed with somebody. Because they can go, oh, you Christians, you're just a bunch of hypocrites, okay? But they can have their Barney Franks and they can have all their you know, Bill Clintons and everybody else that can do whatever they want and it's okay. Okay? See? It's okay. It's a double standard. It's the old double standard thing. Anybody can do anything they want except Christians. They've got to live up to their standard, and when they don't, we're going to hold their feet to the fire. So what Peter's simply saying is, guys and gals, you've got to live a clean life and don't use the freedom in Christ to go do your own thing because people are just waiting there like turkey vultures 
waiting for somebody to fall over so they can pick the meat off of you. They're just waiting for you to die in the wilderness so they can feast on your carcass and belch and laugh. <laughs> oh, dumb Christians, look at them. Just eat them up. And Peter says, no. Submit, because if you don't... Now, here, here we come in. See, Christians... Christians are not to be revolutionaries. Now, we're to be revolutionary in one sense to fight the whole world system, but we're not out there, you know, Rambos, you know, shooting it up. We're to submit to authority and suffer. Why? It's that way that we say we believe that we submit to the King of Kings and He's really in control. And then he goes through. That's, that's the general principle. Christians are to submit and they're to even to submit to, to do authority that is used improperly. Now let me give you the caveat. The only place that that is an exception is when we're told to sin. We have enough examples in the Bible. Now I want to tell you honestly at this point, I don't have this all packaged. I would like to be able to tell you the 23 principles of when to rebel against an authority. But it is not easy. And I don't have it yet. And I think if someone would get that nailed down, it would be wonderful. The general principle is we may not sin that grace may abound. And so if Nebuchadnezzar says, you're bowing down to the statue, your response has to be, O king, live forever. But... Our God can and will deliver us. And if He doesn't, we will not bow down. You're going to fry. Fry we must, but bow we won't. Peter and John, don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And what a great response. A little sarcastic tongue-in-cheek. Well, you, you determine whether it's better to obey God or man. But we will not stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, I can give you some feels through this. Uh, you know, a husband asks a wife to do something that's overtly sinful. Cheat on the income tax and sign it. Watch pornography together. Let the kids smoke pot on the side. Can't do it. Cannot do it. You have stepped beyond your God-given authority in giving that command. It's not easy. So there are the exceptions. But, you know, we are not Rambos looking around for some small revolutionary thing to shoot them up. And a lot of Christians get that attitude. And then in, in the more common uh, relationship, servant, master, husband, wife, in the household context, comes down to this. We're to honor all men we're to love the brotherhood and we are to fear God, honor the King. And I say this to my kids and I don't think they, they, they fully understand because they keep saying, will you say you're God? No, I'm not saying I'm God. Love your brother who you do see. How can you say that you are submitted to God when you won't obey your parents or your commanding officer here? You see? Or to put it in street terms again, who died and left you boss? 
Only when God gives you the command. It's a fearful thing to be in command because you answer to God. But let's go through some of the particulars that are very helpful before we end up. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but what? To those who are, some versions say, perverse. Are you kidding me? Come on, Lord, to this perverse person? Yeah. Yeah. But what they're asking is unreasonable, even to that. In fact, that is unjust. Look what he says. For what credit? Now, this hurts. I want stars in my crown, right? If I, if, if I, if I get caught off, cut off by somebody on the freeway and I pray for them instead of you know, wanting to run them up in the ice plant, you know, <laughs> you know, I want stars in my crown in heaven. You know, I, I want God to you know, have the angels applaud because I'm doing that, right? That's not even in the ballpark. Okay? Okay? And I can't prove this, but you know, I have the suspicion that Jesus was spanked. Now, let me say correct. Not because he did anything wrong, but I can't believe his brothers and sisters didn't try to get him stuck with something. You know, and I wonder that it's not just the cross that started where Christ started taking. He patiently endured getting blamed. What credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated? You get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. And you get yelled at. And you don't retaliate. Your blood pressure goes up. And you're boiling within, but you don't say anything. And you look up and go, boy, I'm really, I'm really sanctified, aren't I? I didn't let them have a piece of my mind. And God says, what are you kidding? You provoked them to begin with. Sure they overreacted. But your sin provoked the discipline, even though it was harsh. He says, now, you want credit? I'm scared. The only way I can start getting credit with God is here. I'm starting to come into the ballpark when I do what's right, which is rare to begin with. Okay? When I do what's right, I am harshly treated for it, and I patiently endure it. No wonder I don't get a lot of credit with God. Every time my family gives me a hard time, for doing the right thing. You know what I should be doing? I should be going, thank you. I might start getting credit from God if I can handle this correctly. See, that's, that's when the credit starts to come. Not credit for salvation, but when God starts going, son, you finally got it. You're now acting like Jesus. He lived 30 years like that, and that's all he got was blamed for what he didn't do. All the way to the cross. Do I feel like a spiritual miniature? Do you see what I'm saying? That's when credit starts to build up. No wonder we are such small Christians. First of all, we hardly do what's right to begin with. And then two, when we get dumped on for doing it, we come up fighting, don't we? Now, that doesn't mean you go around, hit me, I want to suffer for the Lord. You know, there's enough as it is. But beloved, look what he says. But if when you do what is right, you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Why? Because that's the purpose that you were called for. Whoa. 
Are we going into the depth of God's heart? Why? Because it's only a person who responds like Jesus Christ that gives the testimony of, I believe God's on the throne. Because look how Jesus got through it. He gave you an example to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. While He was being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffered, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Do you see the point? How did Jesus get through it? Primarily three things. I answer to God, not to you. God will repay. Vengeance is His, not mine. Well, we know He's judge, right? John 5. But He said, I did not come for judgment this time. When I return, in fact, the Father's put all judgment in my hand. It's not given to anyone else. In fact, He gave it to me so everyone will honor the Son like He does the Father. But this time, I have not come that men might be condemned, but men might be saved. And now you come down to the gospel that we mouth and we know and believe, but we live very little. Jesus, Jesus had to die in the place of His people. He had to live a perfect life and suffer injustice. And now He didn't use deceit and He didn't use retaliation. Aren't those, again, the chief satanic means of winning? I'll use deceit to get around you. And if I can't deceive you, I'll wipe you out. So, Jesus Christ doesn't go on the cross. When they, you know, can you imagine? He's fulfilling Psalm 22, and what are they doing? They're rubbing Psalm 22 in His nose. They're rubbing His face in the very Scripture. They're mocking Him with what He is fulfilling for the Father. I am astounded by the amount of patience that He has. That's the example that we are to follow. And that's what pleases the Father. Why? Because He likes suffering? No, but He knows that suffering is the only way for the sheep to be saved. In Christ's case, it was the literal atonement being nailed to the cross. We like sheep, we're going astray. Now, your example and my example will save no one. But it will point to Christ. Do you understand? Later it says, if you're persecuted for the Gospel's sake, it's a sign that the Spirit of Christ and glory rests upon you. Have you ever thought of that? We are lightning rods to absorb the wrath of people against the Holy God as they begin to see us acting in a holy Christ-like manner, wrath will come against us because they're wicked, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Righteous lot? Well, what about the Bible calls them righteous? He's given his daughters away. But compared to these Sodomites, he's righteous. And you will stick out... Remember what, you remember what they said at the door? You're a stranger among us, aren't you? All these homosexuals that had come you know, to break the house down and one of the two men, send them out here. He says, no, brothers, this is not right. Oh, you, who are you to tell us? You're a stranger. 
You're not even one of us. And here you're trying. Who made you judge over us? See that hatred? And you try to break down the door and get to Lot and kill him? That's what the world's going to respond when you, when you do that. But as you show the mercy of Christ and the Christ-like response, God's elect, as God works in them, will begin to see something. And they'll be attracted to go, this is unreal. I've never seen anything like this before. How can they be so loving under persecution? How could they sing God's songs when the lions are nibbling at their legs? You ever think about that? How could they go into the Colosseum and being eaten up and still blessing instead of cursing? Think about that. You don't have any recording of the early Christians going, Oh yeah, you're going to get yours! You just wait and see! Because the Spirit of Christ rests upon them. Now let's face it. Slaves used to get beat up all the time for things they didn't do. Peter goes on then to apply it in two other places. Wives and husbands. Wives in the same way. Now again, I'm sorry all egalitarians to the contrary. There's just no way you can go through you know, these structured hierarchical relationships and say that they're not. You can call them ancient Near East if you want, but that's what the text simply says. And he goes on and says, wives in the same way. You're not going to win your husbands with the externals you know, of the hair and the jewelry and everything else. When they see your spirit of quietness and gentleness, that will be the rebuke. Now, Peter's not dumb, nor is the Lord insensitive. He says, do this without giving in to any fear. Because it's scary, isn't it, to submit and submit in an unqualified way because you're afraid of becoming a doormat. But you're never a doormat when you're like Christ. And then he goes on to apply it to husbands. Now that's different because the husband is you know, in the leading position. He says, okay, you husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, with according to knowledge, and treat her as a fragile vessel. And the, the implication is not so much that she's weak and you're strong, but you know, uh, it's Tupperware versus China. You know, you don't just throw your, you know, your China, your good China around. Peter is saying, treat your wife as if she's a fragile vase, you know, a, a, an heirloom. You know, Tupperware, you just kick around the house and you know, drop and everything else. But not your wife. You know why? Because your prayers could be hindered. I've told guys, if I were you, I'd stop praying. What do you mean, stop praying? That's not very Christian advice. I said, well, in your case, the way you're treating your wife, I don't think you've got a ghost of a chance to be heard by God. And, uh, you know, your problems may just boil down to this. God's not going to listen to you until you start treating your wife in an understanding and respectful way. So here, here uh, Peter reflects on this great calling. Now, at this time, I'm not expecting some of you to leave, but I can imagine people, once they really understand these chapters, kind of like the disciples in John 6, remember when Jesus said, you know, if you don't eat my body and drink of my blood, 
you won't have any life. And they go, man, this is a, this is a tough one. And, and a lot of them left. And Jesus turns to the twelve and said, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You, you're the only one that has the words of life. But a lot of the disciples left Jesus when He really began to set upon them the depth of what He's requiring in terms of discipleship. Beloved, this is scary stuff, I'll be honest. Because it really is calling us to die. The Lord is really saying, you're dead men and women. You're sheep being led to the shearer's dumb. You're reckoned for slaughter every day. Why? Because even though you have this marvelous calling, you're in enemy territory. And if you don't win the battle within, you won't win the battle without. And the battle without is going to be one very difficult. You can think of what Paul says in Romans 12. Don't seek your own revenge, beloved. Why? Because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now let me sum it up by, 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 by a few principles that are right here in the text and we see it in the life of Jesus. Christians are servants who suffer not revolutionaries who punish or tear down. And three, let me leave you with these three things that I think that can help you under pressure. Take a lot of practice, but I think it can. I think we have about five more minutes we can take questions. First of all, not in the Eastern mystical sense, but you have to become aware of God. Your consciousness of living before God has to become heightened. Call it triangular living if you want. The situation you're in or the people you're with and that God's there. <clears throat> I, and I don't mean this in a flippant way, but if you, could, if you could almost live your life with the idea of Jesus leaning on the battlements of heaven and looking down at you, you know, you would do a lot better. I mean, I know I would. A lot of the words I say and things I do, if I could really, really sense and picture the Lord Jesus right, right there next to me looking at me in the face, you know, kind of nodding his head going, go ahead, Skip. I'm listening. <clears throat> Is this the way I would handle this? About 90% of what I say and do might stop. See, it's that thing. You've got to get aware that you live in the presence of God. That should be easier for Calvinists than for anybody else because we believe in a sovereign God who is everywhere and totally in control. And if we would only act like it, it would really inhibit us. Second thing, not only conscious for the sake of conscience towards God, but secondly, Jesus kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. <clears throat> We've got to become aware that God is the one who judges. And really say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, reckon us as ministers or stewards of the mysteries of God. And there's only one thing that's necessary for a, a steward. What? To be found faithful. He says, it's no big thing for me to be judged by you or any other human court. He says, I don't even judge myself. He says, I do have a clear conscience, but that doesn't equip me. It's the Lord who judges. And what's his bottom line? So don't judge me ahead of that day. You see, see Paul's, Paul's bottom line is this. Look, I work for the Lord. I'll be judged by the Lord. So what you think, I don't care. 
I am not going to allow you to box me in to do what you want and respond the way you want. Get off my back, he's saying in a Christian way. I will, he says, now, I'm not acquitted by the fact that I think I'm right. The Lord's the one that makes the judgment. But what he's really saying is, I am so willing to stand before God and be marked by Him that it frees me from the fear of you. See, and beloved, that's what is going to get you over, especially you people that are shy. Not like people like me. <laughs> but some of you are shy, right? You know what it is? It's pride. Just like my arrogance is pride. You don't want to be hurt. You don't want to be put down. You don't want to be judged by other people. You don't have the boldness to stand in their face in a kind way and say, look, I answer to Jesus Christ, not you. And I'm sorry, I will not go by your agenda. I'm sticking with the Lord's until He tells me otherwise. That's freedom. That's freedom. And you will not retaliate as much when you have that sense that God judges. You live in the presence of God. You're judged by Him. Okay? You keep entrusting yourself to Him who judges righteously. And then the third thing is compassion for your victimizer. See, we don't hear that today. The person who dumps on you is going to be wasted in hell unless they repent. Do you understand that? I have to say that to people who have been molested, people who have been beaten. I will say to a woman, do you think there is anything that you could possibly ever do to your father who did that to you that will compare to what God will do to them in eternity in hell. Think about it. And the compassion for that person who will, who will bear the wrath of God forever without relenting. That's the way we should live differently. Why did Jesus suffer? So you and I could be saved as His people. And your suffering, the injustice of this schlep that's dumping on you, is for the purpose of seeing them come to Christ. Remember what, what Paul says to Timothy? The man of God must be gentle, able to exhort those that contradict, so that perhaps God might grant them the gift of repentance. If there's one large failure in my life as a minister of the gospel, it's a lack of gentleness. Because when you box a person in the corner, you know what's going to happen, right? They'll come out swinging. They will come out swinging like a caged animal. And if you box them in with harshness, you won't win them. And so when you're suffering, if you're threatening them back, it won't work. And so these three things, living in the presence of God the way Jesus did, trusting God's judgment and justice the way Jesus did, and be willing to lay down your life so this other person might live the way Jesus did. Beloved, that's our great calling. It's scary, but that's what God's calling us to. Suffering saints. Because I will tell you this, that's what draws people to Christ. And isn't in the long run, we, we do have to get up and obey because God is Lord. But what tenderizes you and what drives you back again and again to a renewed interest in serving the Lord. Isn't it His mercy? Isn't it the cross? It's the cross of Christ that melts your heart again and again and again. And unless we're willing to live that way, people will not see Christ. They won't come to Him. And we won't see revival. Let's pray.
Father, it's embarrassing to preach this because it's the living of this that really is the difference. And Lord, we have seen men in our lives in the OP who have wept over us, who have wept over the souls of their people, and who have been blessed as ministers of the Gospel. Lord God, it is this gentleness and this willingness. It's not a, it's not a, a, a dumbness, an inability to respond, not an Eastern mystical omness where we kind of go into a nirvanic state and don't respond to anything outwardly but is seeing into the heart and the depth of your character is the God who seeks His lost sheep. That, Lord God, we must be sheep led to the slaughter. Lord, I don't like the job description, but Lord, it is Yours. Give us the grace to live this. In Christ's name, Amen.